Hello and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I've got a different guest with me. I've grabbed a co-worker and I've dragged her into the podcasting booth. And Lucy today is going to help me out. So uh, Lucy, what's your attachment to Sakama? So I am Sakama's people and events manager. I've been at Sakama for just over a year now. And one of my responsibilities is actually managing the podcast. So it's really weird being on this side of the glass today. Absolutely. So thank you, Lucy, for for joining me. And Lucy has brought with her a a series of questions around common cybersecurity misconceptions. So I'm going to hand over to Lucy and she will raise a topic and then I, unplanned and unscripted, will attempt to answer a series of cybersecurity misconceptions. Lucy, where do you want to start? So I was speaking to one of our account managers the other day um, about the challenges that they have when they're speaking to our clients or potential clients. Um, And they spoke a lot about um, cybersecurity misconceptions that our clients have. Um, And this just kind of gave me an idea for the podcast. So we're going to go through some of these misconceptions and you're going to speak to us about why they're wrong. Why why they're wrong. So I I, I have to take the antagonistic stance here. I can't throw you off by agreeing with one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, yeah, you definitely can if you like. Um, So obviously one of the most obvious ones that pe- that come up most frequently is money. So I guess there's two sides of the boats here. There are companies that can't afford it mm-hmm. or think that they can't afford it. And then there are also organisations that just don't see it as a priority and they'd rather spend their money elsewhere. So there's no return on investment in security testing. So security has no return on investment. Uh, how do I feel about that? Um I think I think there's there's two things. Um, security can be cost saving, but also in significant cases business saving. And I think most people would presume that's the the route that I would take to defend against this question. It's like, uh, you know, the standard counterpoint of security has no return on investment is, but what if you have a breach? You know, how impactful could that be to a business? And if you were more secure, then you've obviously uh, risk reduced there. But I think a different approach that that some people maybe haven't considered is that you can increase convenience and security at the same time. And if you're increasing convenience, then you're saving time and that allows employees to work on other things. So uh, without giving strong opinions on how I feel about those two things, two really good examples of this is the use of password managers and the use of things like Touch ID, so fingerprint sensors on iPhones or um, uh, other uh, Android phones, things like that. The, The benefit here, of course, if you use a password manager, this is password escrow. So it stores passwords for you and will allow you to conveniently log into websites. So you're saving the amount of time that users would otherwise be losing to getting passwords reset, sitting there for half an hour trying to remember what password they use for those things. Password managers can strongly increase convenience. And when I talk to normal users about security improvements, I tend to find users when they talk about password managers don't talk about how secure they are or the benefits of having uh, distributed distinct passwords. They talk about things like, oh, it's just a lot easier. I click the launch button, it logs me in. That's awesome. And some password managers even have uh, features like uh, LastPass has it, for example, where you can do a one-click password change. So if something has happened, if Twitter has announced a breach or something like that, as an example, and, and you want to change the password just to do that that standard hygiene, that becomes one-click and the password manager handles that for you through escrow. So that's uh, not a cost-saving, which is the default thing we go for for security, but it's just time-saving. It makes your business more efficient. 
And uh, Touch ID and things like that, of course, making it uh, faster to log into devices. If you're moving between a laptop and a mobile device quite frequently, then it saves you those few seconds each time, which obviously um, add together. I, I don't want to give uh, strong opinions on how I feel about uh, Touch ID and, and the use of fingerprint sensors as um, security devices, because I'm going to get to that in the next podcast. So I don't want to get okay. ahead of myself. <laughs> so I'll just say that. Um, security can work alongside convenience. So where you're um, implementing a security improvement, you can also implement a convenience improvement, and that's good. Also, as I did mention, if a company gets breached, that can be incredibly costworthy. Uh, incredibly costly. <laughs> I said costworthy, and I think that was blaming the users a little bit, but uh, costly is, is what I meant. And of course, we talked about that in the last podcast. So uh, in, in that podcast, we were talking about uh, when very, very small companies, so micro companies, startups, small and medium enterprises, when they have a breach, the cost of that breach can be so significant that it can, in some cases, lead those businesses to to struggle as a business or even to go out of business. So whilst there might not be a return on investment in security in that context, it, it can save the business. And when you're talking about those really, really small businesses that, that have to operate so lean because they don't have spare capital, you know, maybe you're, you're at an early stage of investment and, you, and you're trying to save money wherever you can. Security is a difficult thing because, of course, it's seen as an, an extra cost. But the problem is, if, if you do have a breach, then then you could uh, could really go into the red as an organization. So that's why I think that uh, security shouldn't be seen as having no return on investment. I think it absolutely can uh, lead companies in the right direction. Excellent. So the next area is responsibility. So cyber security isn't my responsibility. This is, this is a difficult thing at, at both ends of the scale for businesses because we have um, small organizations. So when you're looking at um, startups where people don't necessarily have job titles, you just have like five employees who all do things and there's not very uh, good uh, job distinction or what we would more uh, commonly in security refer to as separation of responsibilities. Uh, when you're in that kind of organization, um, sometimes nobody might pick up security or you might not have anyone who's experienced in security. And if, if you um, talk to outside uh, counsel and say, you know, what should we do for, for security? Sometimes it can feel like, well, the only thing to do if you don't have in-house expertise is, is go to third parties and third parties can be can be expensive. So some companies, again, will end up in that default state of, well, nobody's responsible, so nobody's evangelizing security. That can occur even at a really big scale as well. We have the the opposite thing. We've talked in previous podcasts about um, how few companies have things like the the CISO role, the Chief Information Security Officer role, and, and also the distinction of um, who the CISO reports to. Are they on the board? Do they report to the board? Or in some cases, they report to the IT department, which is a challenge in itself. So when when people think you know security is not my responsibility, I think in organisations they need to consider overall who is responsible. So do you have a person, a CIO or a CISO, who's responsible? But moving down from that, at each layer of the organization, there should be a person who is elected to be responsible at that uh, that layer. And that's a bit of a strange thing to say because it sounds like we're, we're kind of diffusing responsibility here. But the whole point is, if a person has a security challenge, that is uh, something like we previously mentioned uh, just a moment ago where they're constantly locking their account because they can't um, can't look after passwords, that information should go somewhere. And if that's just a normal kind of shop floor employee, they might not be connected to the CISO and they might not feel responsible for security enough to try and like raise that as an issue. Or they might not, to be honest, feel educated enough to raise that as an issue. They might think uh, it's their fault, right? Oh, I can't remember these passwords and it's causing me dramas. Whereas if an organization has somebody every layer who's elected to be responsible for security, it makes for more efficient escalation 
So if there is a security issue that's raised, and doors not being locked, laptops being left um, unlocked, those kinds of things, they could be escalated to the seesaw for correct management, for policy change to be driven. Or it just makes sure that at each area there is somebody who, who can pick that up. Another interpretation of that question, which I think is probably what they were going towards, is this um, security is not my responsibility from the average employee's point of view. And I know a lot of security awareness training, they try and push like, um, oh no, security is everyone's responsibility and you need to be very careful with opening emails and, and phishing and, and, and those kinds of things uh, and trying to push out that um, everyone should be responsible for security because everyone can have a security improvement. I think that is a good thing to go after. I think developing a company culture in which security is taken seriously is is um, very important, but I, I certainly could have an entire podcast dedicated to what company culture actually is and how having a yoga studio isn't your company culture and those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, trying to trying to push that cybersecurity is every employee's responsibility is a good thing that an organization should work towards but it but it's very difficult especially if you have things set up where employees might think that they may be punished you know if they go to their manager and say I can't log in because I can't ever remember my passwords they might think they would be reprimanded for that and therefore are incentivized not to come forwards or employees might think if I do report this and they don't see meaningful output from that, if it doesn't seem to get fixed, and that might just be because the company's very slow, you know, big companies move slowly, they might not be incentivized there because they think I keep reporting these things and they don't go anywhere. So um, cybersecurity should be diffused across an organization so that there is somebody who can evangelize every layer. This idea of every employee being responsible for cybersecurity requires cultural change and it's not as easy as people think it is. Developing strong company culture and certainly strong company culture around cybersecurity, not easy. Excellent. I think that sounds like really great advice there. Um, when I spoke to the account manager the other day, like one of the things that she actually brought up, which quite surprised me, was um, that some companies believe that their hosting providers, um, because they're hosted, the hosting yeah. providers covered cybersecurity. Yeah. Does is that actually a thing or? It is. It is a thing. Uh, but in most cases, it is not the thing. So uh, the, the the first problem here is hosting provider and what you mean by that. So this could be you're using uh, a service provider who you've essentially outsourced all IT to. And, and they might be in charge of security and might be responsible to security. Uh, or it might be that you're using uh, just a hosting provider where they're, they're hosting some of your servers. So I guess one of the most extreme cases of this would be to use uh, common cloud hosting. So Amazon, AWS, Azure, those kinds of things. I was speaking to to a company recently where they said, um, oh, uh, we use Azure and everything's set to default, so we're secure, right? And I'm not saying that the defaults are insecure, but not having good confidence in that, not reviewing those controls, the way that you're using things, uh, can can be a problem. I mean, in, in most instances on many systems, the default account that you will set things up with is the root account or the administrative account. It's the most powerful account. And certainly if you use um, Amazon's AWS, it, it constantly prompts you to use IAM, which is the uh, system that allows you to uh, essentially create accounts with lower privileges and use those lower privileged accounts. Don't use, don't use root for everything. So yeah, Secure by default is not where we're necessarily at when it comes to, to computing, certainly in a hosting environment. And presuming that your hosting provider handles security is very, very dangerous. Dangerous for, for two reasons. The first is they might think you're responsible for it and then nobody's looking at it. And I think that's the, the thing most people would presume. 
But the second challenge is if you go through your contract and there's a clause in that contract that says third-party hosting provider is responsible for security, you can't necessarily just go, oh, perfect, that's being handled and, and take it off the table. The reason for that is um, to what degree are they liable if they get it wrong? What happens if a security flaw comes about and it's it's deemed either their fault for implementing it or, or probably more likely their fault for, for not addressing it quickly enough? Uh, and I think that's the problem there. And that that's... Uh, the same essentially as, as any other hosting issue, right? You'll have a service level agreement that says what happens in those instances. Um, I think another parallel I could draw to this in terms of, you know, oh, my hosting provider is 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 covering that. It's not something I need to worry about is uh, cybersecurity insurance. Yes, I was going to mention this. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know you had fun discussing that in our, in our last podcast. Hmm. Yeah, so I won't, I won't labor the point. Because I, I raised it in the last podcast, um, cybersecurity insurance is awesome when it works. Good examples being the Home Depot breach of 2014. Uh, they got a payout from their insurer, which reduced the business impact because it reduced the cost. But if you find out that your cybersecurity insurance provider has an exclusion that you didn't consider or, or doesn't have appropriate cover, or maybe it just maxes out, maybe your liability cover is, is only so much, and it's not going to help you. But yeah, I think it's a similar problem. What, however you are handling this, be it through third parties, be it internally, or be it through um, insurance, you need to look at what happens if this goes wrong, and that's your service level agreements. Excellent. Um, and the next area of common cybersecurity misconceptions is it won't happen to me. So I think a lot of businesses either think that the comp their company's not big enough, so it's not worth hacking, or they're in an industry that isn't vulnerable to cyber attacks. Go for it, Holly. Oh, it won't happen to me. Um, I get this in in a few different ways when I, when I talk to companies uh, about security testing, so the, the kind of red teaming, penetration testing, vulnerability assessments, where, where companies think uh, we don't have to handle this because it, it, it doesn't uh, impact our industry, it doesn't impact our sector. I, I think that's a, a really easy thing to to counter with, with data. You can just show, hey, in your sector, this is how many companies um, get compromised. But I think uh, an alternative way of thinking about it is uh, essentially why would somebody want to hack an organization? So this is this is getting into threat modeling, right? Why do hackers hack? And one of the things that will come out from that is um, insiders and uh, politically motivated attackers. So the reason that these two are um, important is uh, politically motivated attackers might not target your organization because of who you are or what you do. You might just have a user base that they want to spread a message to. So um, an example here might be they, they deface as many websites as they can to put their political message on it so that they can maximize the number of users who see that. And they might not care who you are or, or how you operate. It might just be that you are an easy target and it's another system that they can use to spread that message. So politically motivated attackers, their actual um, targets can sometimes be kind of um, disparate and unrelated, mm. but it still means that you get um, targeted. It still means that your your site might go down. And the difficulty is here, Some certainly some techies might think, oh, so our front page gets defaced. What does that matter? It's the equivalent of somebody like pulling a poster off the wall, right? It's just a brochure that gets taken offline. It's not a big deal. Um, and the, the counterpoint to that, of course, is the potential for brand damage. And brand yeah. damage... It's such a difficult thing to talk about. And I, I wrote an article back in 2015 about um, measuring brand damage in terms of share price and how companies' share price eventually recovers. So there's an argument that could be said that brand damage isn't a real thing, right, if your share price bounces. And um, people who are hearing that for the first time 
might be curious, but that the kinds of timeline that we're talking about here can be, can be very, very short. Some organizations' share price will return within a couple of weeks. So brand damage is difficult. And then you get things like, what, what if there were customers who would sign with you who choose not to because they hear that you've been hacked and that gives them uh, you know, loss of confidence in your service? And then look at things like the the talk talk and breach. They were announcing um, how many customers they think they lost following their breach. And and I stress the word think there because of course they don't know how many new subscribers they would have definitely had if they hadn't been hacked. So they're presuming there, and and those metrics might not necessarily be very strong. So um, yeah, you you might get hacked. It might be something simple like a defacement, but that can still have a significant impact on the organization. But the second thing I mentioned was um, insiders. So the insider threat. And I think a lot of people think of insiders in the most extreme case, which is like somebody who joins your company specifically to take you down from the inside. Or a counterpoint might be, um, oh, try and financially motivate it. So something like somebody who gets a job at the bank so they can learn how the bank systems work so they can steal money, right? So a very, very complex, very long-term attack. And it isn't necessarily that. And we've had a couple of good examples recently of that. Um, The first one might just be uh, disgruntled employees. So if you fire somebody and they don't like that, they might damage things on their way out of the building. And, uh, you know, that should be handled by very quickly revoking access, very quickly disabling accounts and those kinds of things. But I think a lot of companies would say, oh, we don't need to worry about disgruntled ex-employees because, you know, none of our people are techies. So they, they couldn't have this impact, you know, if they're in a non-tech sector. Uh, I think the challenge there, of course, is um, you can buy hacking tools. You can buy hacking capability. There's um, people out there that if you, you if you give money to will perform attacks for you. Good example of that would be uh, Titanium Stressor, which is an old tool now from a few years ago, but that was a, a DDoS platform where you could essentially pay the platform owner some money and then they would launch a denial of service attack against uh, an organization for you. So if you got fired, you could take this offline. So this reminded me of that boy who implemented a DDoS attack on his school the other day because he didn't want to do his homework. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really good example. I think schools would uh, understand that their students might potentially act as kind of like little insider threats, uh, maybe because of things like not wanting to do homework, but but also maybe just because they're there for a long time and they might get bored and they might be curious and they might play around with things. I've actually done uh, security testing services for private schools before, uh, boarding schools, where um, they, they felt that that challenge was bigger because their students don't go home at the end of the day. So they're oh, like, they're, interesting. They're, they're so here. Were yeah. they essentially worried about their students? That was one of their biggest um, oh. threats, not necessarily from the, the highest impact that could be caused, yeah, but course. just from... Um, if you if you consider an attacker from this threat modeling point of view in terms of uh, attacker capability, and capability might be uh, money to buy better tools, it might be um, skill gained, or it might just be having a lot of time. Yeah. So they're, they're considered um, their, their students to be a threat there. But yeah, absolutely. The story that, that, that came out uh, a few days ago, which was um, a schoolboy who didn't want to do his homework and, and launched a, a denial of service attack. And how did he do that? Exactly how I inferred he, he yeah. bought a tool to do that. So yeah, some companies who think um, insider threat doesn't impact us because none of our staff are technical, you can purchase this capability. Uh, a slightly different twist on that, though, that some companies might not have uh, expected is what happened to AT&T. So AT&T, the, the US company, uh, recently uh, it came out, came, came to light that um, some of their employees were being paid by an outsider to perform actions that would have a secure impact for them. So you can imagine in this context, it would be things like, oh, can you install this software on your work device? Can you um, tell me what your password is and things like that? And, and these individually might be fairly small. You know, if you think 
what's the worst impact that an attacker could have gaining just one low level, uh, low privilege level member of staff's password? Well, it's a foothold into the network, right? It's a starting point. Uh, and also, if you can convince members of the IT team, members of the support team, those kinds of things, financially incentivize them, I will give you money if you perform this action. It, it might be the case that they uh, bypass processes, install software, those kinds of things for you. Uh, and that happened to AT&T. So I think people can understand why they might be a target. But again, it just it brings another kind of route into, you know, our uh, ex-employees, it doesn't matter how disgruntled they are, they couldn't impact us. Well, maybe, maybe they could. So, Holly... Do you ever come across companies who think they're completely secure? That's it. Job done. Had a pen test. Yeah. Um, not only uh, companies in terms of their own systems, but companies over reliance upon air protection. So I was talking to a company recently about um, perimeter breaks. So how would an attacker get in from the internet into their internal systems? And uh, one of the ways that we were exploring was malicious USB devices, right? So give their staff members some some malicious USB devices, things like bad USB if people want a specific example. Or you could uh, do the, the old uh, idea of uh, leave some USBs in the car park and see if anyone will pick them up and plug them in. Uh, and they said that wasn't a risk to them because they had USB blocking software. And now what really they should mean in that context is, you know, we have reduced that risk because we have a mitigating factor. And what, what they're actually saying, without intending to, of course, is um, we are completely secure in this aspect. We cannot be attacked over USB because we have USB blocking software. And it's like, okay, and your blocking software is completely vulnerable-less. You know, it's like, has no vulnerabilities in it at all and forevermore will have no vulnerabilities. So sometimes it's companies thinking their entire estate is secure. It's just an over-reliance on a specific kind of security. Um, people very frequently talk about iPhones being very secure. And in the next podcast, yes. I'm going to talk about iPhones <laughs> getting hacked. So there's a there's a little plug for, for listening in for the next one. But instead of getting ahead of myself, th- this over-reliance on uh, specific actions can, can be very difficult to overcome from a, a third-party point of view. Um, certainly if they're talking to an account manager and, and uh, the account manager is trying to give them ideas around how that might be uh, an imperfect solution. And of course, there's, there's bias here because they're saying, well, you're a salesperson. Of course, you'd say that we might be insecure, right? So um, threat modeling comes in here and, it, and it's taking a look at um, the systems who might hack you, what their capabilities are, and how that might change over time. So we've had a pen test. We are now secure. It's like, well, you're secure to the context of that pen test for this time period, right? Yeah, because essentially the next day they could upload a, a new piece of software and then yeah. they're vulnerable again. Yeah, and I think this is this is getting um, increasingly common with uh, companies moving towards either an agile or a, a lean development method. So where the company is, um, instead of releasing a new product once a year, which used to be very common, you're doing major releases once a year, um, companies are doing several releases a day now. That's not uncommon. And um, a lot of companies who are listening won't be at that extreme, but they'll be somewhere between those two, right? So they'll be releasing uh, regular changes and, and those changes can change the context of the, the application, the context of the system, and introduce vulnerabilities. And if you're pushing uh, a new feature once a month, but you're having security testing once a year, then the, there's obviously a disconnect there. Penetration testing is imperfect. The, the way that I, I usually try and talk about penetration testing is that it is scope-restricted and time-limited. So what I'm talking about here is a pen tester will look at your systems for a finite amount of time. The reason for that, of course, is pen tests are consultancy-led and you are paying for a consultant's time. So that's that's the reason behind that restriction. It's not an inherent weakness. It, it just means that we're, we're time-limited. So we can't necessarily 
uh, get the, the full exposure of the application. And of course, there's diminishing returns. If we were to say, well, we'll spend a week on this, and you said, no, no, we're worried about this time-limited thing, have two weeks on it, maybe that wouldn't bring the benefit that you would because of diminishing returns. Um, so it's a challenge, and also scope-restricted in terms of uh, penetration testing is what are we actually testing and in what way are we testing it, and how can we chain vulnerabilities together? So most pen tests, it's just technical attacks. We're just launching technical hacks against a system. And we're not necessarily considering things like physical access or, or social attacks. We try and get away from that with red teaming, which we've talked about before. We had the red teaming podcast where we talk about bringing in physical, technical and social attacks all at the same time. But again, you still you still have the same problem, right? Okay, so today the system has been tested to a certain configuration and if you make changes in the future... I think one of the most common things, even if you are saying, well, this doesn't apply to us because we are still old school, we still release once a year. Well, maybe you hire a new member of staff. Maybe a member of staff changes their password. Maybe a software update is released and the software update causes a problem. We've seen that a few times. Uh, so yeah, uh, pen tests or any kind of security test is, is a point in time assessment and, and things can change. So if you're standing there and thinking because of security testing, you're completely secure, it, it's probably a bad thing. If you're thinking we have X product, therefore we're completely secure, that's uh, overconfidence in a specific system and you need to, to look if that system ever becomes vulnerable. Um, how might an attacker target you? And that's looking at defense in depth. So what's the minimum a company can do to be secure? What is the minimum a company can do to be considered secure is one of the best questions that you can ask. And I think it has sent out a collective twitch throughout the entirety of the security community. Because saying to a security professional who invests significant amounts of their career in developing better and better systems, what's the minimum we can get away with will we'll make them feel really awkward. But the truth is, it's not a bad question. And if your board is asking that kind of question, of course, you'll want to have a discussion around um, why aiming for the minimum is potentially a bad thing. And, you know, what if you uh, fall slightly short of where you thought you were and then you're below a minimum kind of thing? Um, but the problem is uh, security has a cost associated with it. And Back if you to our are, first point there. Yeah, and if you are overspending on security, then it's diminishing returns again, right? So if you can get 80% of the work done for 20% of the cost and that extra 20% is incredibly more expensive, then maybe that's a thing that a company wants to avoid. The, the problem is getting at accurate metrics on that. So how will you know that you've achieved the minimum? And how will you know that in the near future, there won't be some left shift where suddenly that minimum is no longer good enough? And if you're doing security late, you're always at the last moment implementing the minimum security, then, then you're going to have challenges there. But the, the truth is, yeah, security testing's um, expensive. And when, when we highlight questions like, oh, your company's doing annual penetration testing. That's bad. You should do it more frequently. Sensible thing for a company says, well, how frequently, right? And, and there's no definite answer there. You tend to hear people say things like, oh, you should do continuous security testing. It's like, well, does that mean a pen test every day for 365 days? It's like, well, no, it's complicated, right? I think some other people, when hearing the term minimum, would naturally try and find a level in which they could recommend. So people would reach for things like cyber essentials, cyber essentials being described as basic cyber hygiene. Um, I, I, I don't think that's the right answer. It, it's so contextual to an organization. Um, what's the minimum that an organization can do to uh, ensure that they're secure? 
What do you mean by minimum? What do you mean by secure, right? It's, it's, it's such uh, a difficult question. In terms of secure, some organizations are going to side either on reducing cost of a breach, or maybe, hopefully, some will consider things like uh, user privacy. So if we have a breach, we don't just want to save the organization the damage, but we also want to save the users the damage of, of having their, their details breached and those kinds of things. And yeah, such such a difficult question. Um, and I think it's the kind of question that uh, any security professional who works at a company should prepare themselves for. So whilst I can't give you a canned response because it's so contextual to each organization, security professionals should pull apart that question and try and get a good answer because it wouldn't be a bad question for the board to ask. Are we overspending? That's another way of wording that same question, right? And it's a good question for a company to ask. Excellent. Well, those are my four points covered. Is there anything else that you wanted to add to our list of common cybersecurity misconceptions? I haven't talked so much about passwords. We, we briefly mentioned passwords and I, and I think, um, you know, I, I, I naturally default to talking about things like password managers. I didn't actually talk about two-factor authentication because like I said, in the, in the near future, I'm going to talk about uh, Touch ID on iPhones. But um, yeah, I think the, there's a common misconception around uh, default security protections, well-known security protections. People will say we are secure because we have antivirus, a firewall and a long password. Um, this is my password, 12345678 is a long password and <laughs> also a horrendous choice. It, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So um, my general advice around passwords would be they are bad no matter what you do with them. Um, the, there's so many weaknesses that you can have there, bursting them with dictionary words, reusing them across uh, multiple applications, then being sent insecure without you realizing they're being sent insecure and those kinds of things. Password managers help in that space. But an alternative that should definitely be considered is two-factor authentication. Two-factor authentication, sometimes called multi-factor authentication, is the idea of using um, distinct aspects for security. And so instead of just using a password, you would use a password and something else. I'm not meaning two passwords. I mean like a password and a dongle, a password and a USB device. Or which what's uh, most commonly seen is a password and then uh, like either a mobile app or a device that gives you a, a, a PIN number that, that lasts you know 60 seconds and it cycles. Um, those kinds of things tend to have a bad name because they're increasing inconvenience, right? Password managers, as I mentioned earlier, increase convenience because they can do things like log in for you, change passwords for you. Two-factor authentication where you type a password and then it says, now tell, tell us what your PIN number is and you've got to get your phone out your bag and unlock your phone and then open the app and that's increasing inconvenience. Um, things like that have given two-factor authentication a bad name. There are other ways of doing it, physical devices, things like YubiKey to give a specific example. Um, those exist, those can make two-factor authentication uh, more convenient or, or certainly a lot less convenient than, than some devices. So just because we mentioned passwords, please, please, people don't take passwords to be a brilliant security protection. They're certainly not. Uh, you should investigate other, other methods. I think the best way to wrap this podcast up is to push out to the audience and say, which of your questions didn't we answer? Is there anything that either... Uh, you as an audience member um, are unsure of, something that you keep hearing that you're not convinced is correct, or maybe something that your business keeps pushing back to you that you don't have a strong answer for. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, which misconception do you most frequently hear? And which which uh, thing are you unsure of yourself that maybe we could dedicate a podcast to giving you a good answer for? Let us know over social media. <laughs> <laughs>